What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. Today on the show, we've got Dara Ert. Um, it's also getting these countries to take responsibility, the, the BRICS countries, to say, you know, we need to take responsibility, invest in R&D, invest in solutions, partner with people, because our, our, our own economic livelihood is based on these pr- the productivity of these people. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Dara, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, um... I'm excited to have you on. It, it's, it was fun for uh, Josh Soloway to introduce us, uh, I know, a number of months back. And um, I think people are really going to be interested to hear about taking for-profit skills and things you learned in management consulting and you know becoming a director of finance for $100 million nonprofit and, and all the work you've, been, you've done uh, advising the Gates Foundation and working with them in different ways. Um, but to begin with, can you tell people what Eris is? Sure. Um, so Eris is a nonprofit biotechnology company. Um, it is called a Product Development Partnership, a PDP. These organizations were created in the late 1990s, early 2000s um, to address uh, market failures around tropical neglected diseases and other neglected diseases. So where pharma and biotechnology companies weren't necessarily incentivized to develop products for these markets and academia didn't necessarily have the skills or resources to take their innovations to market. So these type of nonprofits were developed then. And we are about 80 employees sitting in Rockville, Maryland, with offices in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and two people sitting in Beijing, China, and primarily funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, along with some funding from the British uh, DFID government and Japanese government. That's great. Well, when you were quoting the math to me on like the value for society from just a straight, you know, it was like my inner investor was listening <laughs> from stri- just the math perspective of if you guys are able to get, a t- you know, create a TV, TB vaccine. Um, help me if, if I've got this math right. So 9.6 million people a year are infected with TB right now, kills 1.5 million a year. 
and we spend about $8 billion a year helping those 9.6 million infected people. Is that right? That is correct. So, you know, round math here, not quite $1,000 a person if you average it out, right? And if a vaccine like this could be created, instead of $1,000 a person, we're talking $5 for a vaccine. Is that, do I have that right? We'd say $5 or less, I think, to make it the most accessible to the people who need it the most. But yes, let's go with that price. Yeah, so that's a pretty good efficiency in my, you know, my limited use of math. Exactly. <laughs> so um, something like this, where it is a longer term, it's a 10 to 15 years type of bet to, to, to get something like this. Um, tell us about the innovation that's been brought to this space as far as involving the prof- the for-profit world, the JSKs, and, and what's in it for them of, of working with somebody like you. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So basically, we don't own the, I, the intellectual property, the IP ourselves. We are, serve as a coordinator for getting the product to development. So basically, um, there are two products with large pharmaceutical companies existing now. One is GSK and one is Sanofi, and we have some other smaller products, um, smaller partnerships as well. But basically, these two large companies who drive huge markets in the pharma world had these either compound or vaccine development sitting on their shelves. And they, it exists, but they don't really have the resources or to make the case to their shareholders to bring it to market because they can't justify the cost of developing it to the price and return on investment. So that's where we come in and we say, we'll partner with you. We'll help bring this product through you know, phase one, two development, um, which costs million, hundreds of millions of dollars to do. And then, you know, once we get to market, if we one of these products becomes um, licensed, approved, and we want to deliver it, we have to make sure that it's accessible and affordable to the people who really need it. But it's probably a product that we would use in the U.S. as well or Europe because there's TB everywhere. It's an airborne bacterial disease treated by antibiotics, and we all know that antibiotics are becoming more and more resistant. Um, so it's a, it's a vaccine that would be used worldwide. And so when it comes to de- the developed markets, the GSKs and Sanofis of the world would then be able to price it as they would like in those countries. And and for people who don't know Glasgow SmithKline or, or um, Sanofi, like you think about, I mean, I think it's great, you know, that somebody like you, you know, that you guys can get, you know, these companies with hundred hundred billion dollar plus market caps get involved and and do you mind talking about like the relationship the 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 opportunity where you're going to make it accessible for like these underprivileged um the the most in need groups and and maybe talk about how who and and gavi define that but then these guys retain that pricing opportunity pricing uh decision making in, sure, in yeah. the first world nations yeah, so basically, you know, this happens in all, it happens malaria, it happens with HIV, it happens in all of these neglected diseases where the, the technology exists, but there's no incentive to bring it to market. And so, and we need their expertise as well, right? They're, they're hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars um, in market share because of their expertise in bringing mar- in products to market. So we definitely leverage their knowledge. Um, they just don't have the investment ability to, to bring to bring it to market. So what we do is we partner with them and decide, you know, what part are we going to, what role are we going to play in the development and what part are they? So are they going to do the data analysis? Are they going to do the clinical trial monitoring? Most of our clinical trials are run in South Africa um, or other lower income countries. And so we definitely have the expertise and the capacity built in these countries to run those trials. And they may have 
they may want to um, do some of the more lab work or monitoring of the trials themselves. So it just depends. And we, we figure out that relationship with these large companies. And then, you know, we work with the World Health Organization, WHO or Gavi. Um, it's just the Global Vaccine, Global Alliance for Vaccine and um, initiative to figure out how you want to deliver these products. So um, they need to get to the poorest of the poorest, so usually ranked by GDP. Um, and then it's also delivery. So you can't create a vaccine that has three to five doses because how are you going to get that vaccine out to the, the poorest villages that aren't accessible on roads? So you can develop a vaccine that's effective with five doses, but that won't get to the end user. So it's also looking at even the earlier stages of development. What's the right profile for that vaccine? Who, what, what? Um, patient population at what age group? Um, should it be one dose, two doses? Can it follow the regular vaccine schedule that we already have our children on so that you don't have to bring your child back into the clinic for another one? So these are things we talk about with these partners, with both the private sector and the multinational organizations. Um, and for TB in particular, it's actually spread mostly by young adults and adolescents, not by infants. And so for us, it's developing a vaccine for young adults and adolescents. That's even an additional challenge is how are you going to get those people into a clinic for a vaccination? Yeah. So, I mean, it really makes me think about on the show, obviously we're talking a lot about innovation and it makes me think a lot about our heroes over at IDEO who are mm -hmm. always, you know, they're not just designing great product. They're, they're so great at thinking through, you know, the guys at IDEO who are thinking through, how is this thing going to get delivered? How are like, is this actually going to attract people? Is it going to work for them? Right. It's like the experience design aspect of it too. Exactly. And I hear that as you talk about the delivery of like, it's, it's not enough for it to work itself. It has to, it has to get implemented. Exactly. Yeah. It has to be made for the end user. Um, so talk, talk about, yeah, talk about, I mean, do you guys, pretty much know what those challenges are or does it take additional like field work to watch what's working with other things that are being delivered in, in those lower GDP countries or what, how does that design process work of um, yeah. knowing the check boxes that have to be met so that this is actually going to get done? Yeah, I think for the most part, we do a lot of lessons learned with our friends in malaria and HIV. And so a lot of that information has already been created. I think TB has its own particular challenges being a bacterial infection. It's airborne. Um, getting antibiotics to people, but also for, for vaccine delivery, it's at what stage and what phase um, to get it out there. So there's other other issues that aren't shared by HIV and even Ebola. Um, so we, we learn from that. It's also about healthcare systems and strengthening. So um, at what point are you touching patients so that you have access to knowing when they have TB, when they've gotten it? TB is this really crazy disease where you can have it, you can be infected with it, but show no symptoms and be latently infected and actually not be able to pass it on to anyone else. Um, but then at some point your immune system can trigger something and then you actually develop full TB and that's when you need to be, um, that's when you're contagious. And so it's a really difficult disease to track that way. And also, so you could live your whole life with it and never develop active TB. The other issue with it is that um, you can get it again once you've been treated. So I guess it's like malaria in that sense. So um, you're really trying to prevent continuous uh, infections with it because we all know that impacts work. Um, people lose job days at work and their families So um, and spreading it. Yeah. You know, I'm interested. I know uh, you were just at the Milk and Global 
and on the panel there moderated by CNN. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, as you guys are continually trying to think about all the hurdles that need to be overcome for what you're doing, just your background, whether it's on the, the for-profit side, the consulting days at CSC or, or at the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, you know, these, these different roles you've had. Um, when, you, when you go to a panel like that, what, what's your mindset? Is it, hey, what can I, like, what are the benefits you're looking for? when you're going to go on a panel like that, that it's worth your time to go out and go to something like that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's something, you know, I don't think I, I intentionally think about, but it's a good question. So this panel at Milken last year, and for people who don't know, Milken Global is an annual conference bringing together celebrities, philanthropy, high-end business people, CEOs from all sectors to talk about issues and challenges across a variety wide range of um, topics. And this happened to be the Zika and Ebola panel and talking about disease preparedness. And I shared the stage with um, Tony Banbury, who's a Vulcan's new chief philanthropy officer, who that's um, Paul Allen's foundation. Also Congressman Ruiz from California and uh, a senior official from Takeda doing vaccine delivery, as well as you mentioned, the CNN hosts. And really the discussion was very U.S. focused as, you know, the, the audience was mostly aware of, right? So it's how does Ebola affect me? How does Zika affect me? What are the innovative financing solutions? And my, when I attend these, I have two objectives. One is to make TB on the radar as objective, right? I, I put up a slide that shows, you know, 11,000 deaths to Ebola last year, where it was 1.5 million deaths to tuberculosis. And I, I get a shock and awe. I tell people now, and WHO just announced this, that TB kills more people than HIV. And, um, so one of my missions is very much TB focused and oh, TB awareness, but also I really want to learn from other people about what are they thinking, where are the resources, what are the partnerships out there? Um, and we make those connections and that's how we help each other in this. And we're not ever going to solve one of these diseases on its own with being siloed. So that's really where I come to um, at this. And, and one of the things I say at these type of forums is, you know, if I were to tell you next year that 1.5 million people are going to die from a disease that is airborne, drug-resistant. You can get it on a subway or an airplane. Would you be funding this? And it, you know, unanimously, it's yes. And then I say it's tuberculosis, and they're like, oh. Um, and so it's really asking people, how do we overcome that? How do we get people's attention? What do we do about this? Yeah, what are, what are some of your thoughts on that, on that question? Um, unfortunately, it's sad. It's very much, you know, does it impact me? How do I get it to show that? We have TB here. We have 10,000 cases a year in the U.S. Um, and we are getting increasingly drug resistance to antibiotics. So it's just a matter of time. I understand that Zika is at our, our borders or in our country now. And Ebola is very scary to see. Um, and not to minimize those at all, but how do we sustain interest and, and funding for something that is way more impactful in number of lives uh, and people and, and deaths per year? Yeah. Well, Maybe anybody who's listening who's got suggestions, they can come to your page on Ideation Collective and, and reach out and send in their ideas, exactly. right? Um, although I will say, you know, arguably being at events like like the one you were just at with Kobe Bryant and Jessica Alba and General Stanley McChrystal and these type of influencers, you know, they're naturally getting that media attention and you probably get like some of that's got to rub off because people who maybe came to see them happen to be in the crowd while your slides go up, Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think we get their attention, but it's not sustained. Um, same with the news. We get we get news clips of you know TB in school in your school district. Um, but until it really impacts people or scares people, 
or is it has, or is it the issue that's been around so long that we kind of know about it and we know our options to deal with it and the Zikas and the Ebolas are new? Um, you know, that's kind of what we're up against right now. Well, it's interesting, right? We, um, Randy Reyes, uh, one of our previous episodes, he talks about, you know, living in Orange County, California, but also living in, in Beirut when things were really crazy. And like at first, you know, with the bombs going off and the shooting, how crazy it was. And then after a while, like that familiarity reduces the fear. And yeah. he's like, you just start decide, like you just decide to live your life anyways. And you, you decide what you can do and what you can't, you decide what you can control and what you can't control. And you spend your time focusing on what you can control. Right. Yep. Um, and it does make me think like how, you know, if, if the familiarity of hearing, hearing about TB has, has um, reduced the emotional response to it, you know, what kind of storytelling or what kind of things can be done to help people feel that personal connection to this, you know, 1.5 million people that, that uh, are passing away from it. Right. Yeah. I think that's exactly, I think the other issue is that it's a disease of the poor, right. For the most part, Mm. it's very much the the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are dying are the, are the poorest people in the poorest countries. And so they, they rarely have a voice anyway, and then in addition, here's a disease they're dying from. And so they, it's, it's an addition. So um, it's also getting these countries to take responsibility, the, the BRICS countries to say, you know, we need to take responsibility, invest in R&D, invest in solutions, partner with people, because our, our, our own economic livelihood is based on these, the productivity of these people. Yeah, that's such a good point. It makes me think like almost the like, can we, can you go after it in like the social injustice part of like, you know, should you have to die from this just because you're poor? Yeah. I know it like, you know, generate some interest that direction. Um, well, um, thinking about, and, and I feel like um, maybe we should revisit a little bit talking about the the innovation model of, of working with the for-profits. You know, I'm looking at Glasgow, Smith, Klein, and, and today their market cap is $102 billion, right? Mm-hmm. And it's easy to assume with that kind of money, they can probably do whatever they want. Um, but it's fascinating to hear you talk about, oh no, they're, you know, their shareholder demands, the, the quarterly, <laughs> the quarterly reporting monster, mm-hmm. right. Yep. Limits their ability to go after a, a 10 or 15 year bet, which obviously could pay off in, in ridiculous numbers, but the short term thinking of the public markets, it, it even though they ha- they're this behemoth of, of hundred billion dollar market cap, they have those limitations in their in that way, which essentially you guys are getting around and help me understand, um, exactly the, the relationship of their intellectual property and your services. Like uh, how much are you guys inventing versus just implementing what, what, how much is created versus how much are you guys inventing? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So they definitely hold the intellectual property. We don't hold it. And in fact, I think now it's 100% instituted by Gates Foundation. If you accept funding from them, that you have to have open access, which means you know, you basically release IP rights when you're talking about these markets. Um, so they basically have this entity, this disease, the the compound or whatever the yeah we're talking about the the scientific discovery formula whatever yeah and we partner with them and whatever part needs to move forward so is it in putting it into um non-human primates is it 
putting, you know, developing the actual trial design and we work with them on the trial design and then we implement it with our partners on the ground. Um, or, you know, that's basically the role that we fill in that. And they're very much a part of every discussion. They control a lot of um, press release, news. Like We're very controlled in what we can say about each product with because they actually own that IP, right? I, I have a few thoughts about where we are now versus probably where we were in 1999. Sure. In the sense that in some ways now there's even less less incentive for them to do good with us of these products because we've enabled them, right? We, there's now the Gates money and these product development partnerships where now – there's even less need for them to do it because they know someone else will do it for them. Mm. Um, so I haven't really thought that through completely, but you know, societal pressure is strong and probably was strong back then. And they, they definitely reacted to HIV advocacy, needing new drugs for age when HIV was coming of age. Um, but now we, there's a more of an advocacy to like, let us help you get those products to market rather than you should get those products to market. So I think the discourse has changed. Um, and then there are a few new incentives for them themselves to get products to market, right? So they have fast pass, fast track through FDA. So if, if they can get one of these neglected um, disease drugs or vaccine diagnostics through FDA approval, they can earn a fast uh, track pass on another and, you know, product that they're working on. So there are other innovative ways to get them to, to develop products. But I think the, the stage is a bit different than it was in the late 1990s. Interesting. You know, on, on a bit of a different subject, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, so many people that we know who are listening to the show are in the earlier stages of their business, right? They're not a billion dollar company, let alone a hundred billion dollar company. Um, as you see people who are out there trying to do good, and I'm thinking, you know, um, I know, you know, after being in charge of this, you know, hundred $100 million operating budget at IAV and uh, going on to doing your own consulting, whether it's Nets for Life or these other things. Well, actually, why don't, why don't you tell people a little bit about, about some of that stuff? Like what, what is Nets for Life? Yeah. So basically, as I was transitioning out of a full-time role and looking for some consulting opportunities, I was realizing that I, I definitely had this unique set of skills that probably not and, and kind of not by intention, but kind of happened by happenstance, I guess, that I had this finance background and, and some management consulting background and skills, but also very was very intimate with USAID funding, which has enormous regulations and um, reporting requirements. So that that skill is very much desired by nonprofits and other companies looking for that funding. Um, but then also product development. So how do you get a product from preclinical through development phases? And to have all three of those kind of like the finance acumen, the product development acumen, and then understanding USAID funding and even Gates funding, it's just a unique set. So I think that's helped me transition through the to be a consultant and realize that I could be working on some of these niche projects. Um, so for Nets for Life, they, again, they were looking at, they had a very uh, defined set of funding and we're looking for USAID funding. And they are, uh, they started um, from private philanthropy and then worked with the Episcopal Relief and Development Organization and also funded by Coca-Cola and ExxonMobil to get delivery of ma malaria nets to some of the hardest place uh, villages in um, in Africa, five countries I believe they were working in. And they were using it, their, their model was actually to go through religious affiliation, so um, the, the Church of England or different churches and using religion to help gain access to some of the remote villages. 
Um, and they were about to get some USAID funding and they needed to understand what processes they needed in place, what financial reporting systems they needed to have in place to do that. Um, and it was, it was actually quite easy for me to say, to take my skill set from IABI where I had done a hundred million dollar project to look at something that had a few million dollars and to really ramp up to scale and say, you really, this is the basic requirements that you need for reporting to USAID. And this is how, how your relationship should be built with your program officer. Um, and that transitioned as well. When I went to Gates, um, they were looking for someone, it was in an advocacy role, which isn't my natural background, but really to quantify advocacy and to look at what's been funded, what hasn't been funded, historical funding trends, to really put our finger on, you know, where can the dollar be most impactful or where has it been most neglected and where can their impact be the greatest? You know, um, I feel like one of the things that you, that you said in there that, that I feel like could be reemphasized is the technicalities of understanding the systems of how dollars are acquired is something that is highly valuable and will always be valuable. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about uh, Josh Soloway who introduced us and we've got him coming on for a series of, you know, as a securities lawyer, he understands all the technicalities of <laughs> how do you raise money legally in this country? <laughs> right. So we're, We've got a series. We've actually got a free class coming out about that. We're going to be giving out to people. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking I was at a crowdfunding conference a week ago and they were talking about some of the technology grants that for-profit companies can acquire essentially free money, right? Yeah. And, but you can guarantee it's not this kind of thing that you don't, that you put five minutes of thought in and show up and put your hand out and say, oh, I'd like that. You know, yeah. like, like you have to learn how to sell what they're buying and you, ha- you know what I mean? There's going to be all these intricacies to it. Um, so, so thinking about this, you know, paying the price to understand profits and losses and, and accounting yep. terminology, acronyms, um, taking the time to, to, you know, learn the technicalities of working with USAID plus, you know, putting in the hours of, of trying projects, I'm sure making mistakes, trying again, um, can you talk at all about like uh, any advice you have for people who, if they want to master that skill set, let's say they want to they want to do what you've done, they want to be able to access these larger dollars from whether it's Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or USAID or any of these. What advice would you have for people who want to acquire that skill set? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I think I come out from a, a lots of different angles and lots of different advice. One is like the basic is just patience, right? None of this happens quickly. None of these relationships develop overnight and the fun, the funding streams are very long term. Um, I would say the network, your network is inc- incredibly valuable. It's like having the coffees and lunches with people, talking to people. Um, I mean, I'm a huge believer in LinkedIn just for knowing who's connected and how you can meet someone else, not for your own gain necessarily, but also just what you can share to, for other people. And you never know when it comes back to you. So just the network is, is increased, incredibly important. And one of the things I've learned most recently at Eris, um, is the trust that people have working with me in TB drugs and TB diagnostics where formerly had been very siloed and very competitive because we're all trying to go after the same limited TB resources. Um, and our predecessors had kind of aligned it for that way. But I, I come from the point where, you know, the greater, the greater good to work together is, is more important. And if we come as a coalition of, we need more funding for TB, our voices stronger than, and than siloed. So I definitely think networking is huge. Um, this is kind of silly, but 
uh, attending the meetings that you don't want to attend, like the, the conferences, I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily want to fly out to LA after I'd just been in Seattle with, with the Gates Foundation the week before, um, for a day and a half to go to Milk and Global. But I knew that the side meetings there and the people that you meet are just invaluable there. So attending the meetings, not necessarily for the content or the agenda of the meetings, but the opportunities to meet people. Um, and then in terms of um, USAID and Gates, it's it's making those mistakes and trying the different reporting and, ha- and formulating your responses of what they're looking for, but also positioning your organization or a company in the best light because you have they they want to hear the honesty too. They want to know your lessons learned, not just you were amazing and fabulous and you achieved all your deliverables, but what did you learn from from using their money? Um, and that's something that I've definitely learned in, in the last few years. More importantly, is they they want to hear the lessons learned. Those are helpful to them. Yeah, um, can you you know it's it's interesting from the outside um, hearing like. You're working with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You just you go to these events with the movie stars. It sounds like everything's just been perfect for you, and you got handed the silver spoon. And look at how light, how easy life was for Dara. Can you can you tell any of the experiences of what of of one of those mistakes you went through of when you did it wrong and or something that didn't work out right that you had to recover from? Anything that you can, you can yeah, think of? No, I have been many, and I, it does sound all, all great and glowy, but it's hard work um, putting the hours in, and I think figuring out acknowledging your skill set and where you don't know things, right? Like I'm not a doctor. I don't have the disease expertise, but working in HIV for 10 to 15 years, you you get it. So I think it's acknowledging your weaknesses as well. But um, probably as an independent consultant, I definitely was eager to take on projects just because it's, as many people know, as independent consultants, it's feast or famine. (laughs) So I probably took on definitely one project that was probably not the best fit for me. And I, I did it anyway and definitely did not have the best outcome. Um, and I learned from that, that you should only take things that you feel like you can do well and are, are your best fit. And if it's not, that something else will come along. Um, and I, I had to go through that painful experience to recognize that. Um, because I think when you are in this position where you things keep plugging along and you keep going from one thing to the next, you think you can do anything, right? It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. Well, I'm sure, sure I can write that report or sure I can, you know, do that data analysis, but is it really your sweet spot? Um, and I think recognizing when to say no to something is just as important as, as being available to say yes to something. Mm. Was your, was yours anything like mine when I'm, I like have this nagging sense, Ooh, this really probably isn't right up the fairway for me, but I'm like telling myself, no, no, you'll be fine. Like, yeah. cause I'm, I'm, I'm driven by the fear of, well, if I don't take this, what if I don't get, what if I don't get an account somewhere else? Or what if I don't get work anywhere else? And I, I need this work. And like, for me, I've made a lot of those mistakes from a fear based thing. Yeah. Of, man, if I don't take this or, or maybe it's a greed thing where I'm saying like, well, look at, look at the money on that I can make. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I, I'm sure I can figure it out. And I'm like, I kind of know I'm slightly lying to myself, but I'm like working really hard to ignore that inner voice of like, <laughs> Jess, yeah. this main, like, are you, are you sure Jess? And I'm like, no, no, it, it'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it seems like every time that I'm, I'm like working hard to ignore that, that little small voice, <laughs> things, exactly. things don't end up awesome for me when I, when I'm pushing that little voice down. Is that anything similar for you or? Completely. And it, cause you, you don't want to, you don't want failure to be an option. So you're like, I can do this. I can persevere. And it, it may not be your gold standard of work. Also, I think, you know, some red flags were 
part-time contracts, right? Well, what does part-time mean? I think where this one failed was that they were used to having like a student or some a grad student who was available whenever they needed, but only worked part-time where I had very fixed days. So part-time for me meant Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And if they were trying to get a hold of me on a Tuesday or Thursday, I really couldn't do that work for them. Um, and they got, they got frustrated because they thought part-time meant, well, you're only going to work 20 hours a week, any 20 hours we want. Mm. Um, and so like defining some of those very basic things, but that leads to successful partnerships and successful consulting agreements. No, Um, it's so true, right? The good fences make good neighbors thing. Because how many of us go into assumptions? I mean, you and I were talking about family relationships, and we should, we should talk about work-life balance in a minute. But you know, you think about a marriage. We all we all watched we we all watched marriages growing up, whether it's our own parents or our friends' parents, whatever. And we make these assumptions about what the role of a spouse is. And you get married, and there's all these like unspoken things that you just well, everybody knows this like that's that's the husband's job. That's the, you know like this kind of, like my wife knew taking out the trash was the husband's job, right? Right. It was a little while before she had to point it out to me. We had to have this discussion about is there husband's jobs that you know like, and there's these these assumptions built in where, like you just said, like defining what part time means and and defining like turnaround on responses and these kind of things of like how easy that is to do before people have been disappointed compared to <laughs> after someone's been disappointed and there's all sorts of emotions involved and there's these shoulds going through people's minds and you're that now you're trying to like say where the property line is. Exactly. You know, and I think, you know, part of that fear is also when I decided to start having my own family, I had this nagging fear in the back of my head of, I don't want to drop out of the workforce completely because I heard how hard it is once you get out, how do you get back in and what does that mean? And I probably didn't allow myself that flexibility to completely leave. So, you know, basically my time of raising my kids was while I was at the Gates Foundation, which sounds insane, right? That, you know, that's my, that's when I stepped down from a a full-time position at an organization. Um, And I think that fear was, I just didn't want to let go of the momentum I had been building. Could I have probably lessened up a little bit? Maybe I was enjoying the work for sure. But it's always hindsight of what are you willing to take on versus what you should take on. Yeah. Well, it's tough too for me. Like I, I definitely have a bit of a binge personality and I could probably, you know, I could work every waking minute. Like I, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think a, a lot of, you know, anybody who's an entrepreneur or an innovator these days, they probably come with a dose of over, over optimism and, and a desire to achieve. Right. And with our devices these days, you know, sending us email and texts all night, like if you let it, 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 you know, if you don't choose your own life, it will definitely choose a life for you. Right. Definitely. Especially with offices in Africa and Asia, you could mm. go. All, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't even have to sleep. Right. You could just, exactly. but, um, I'll, I'll, I will say this, there's this great Clayton, Clayton Christensen book and anybody who hasn't read the innovators dilemma or any of his you know classics that from the Harvard business school teacher, you, you really need to, um, they're amazing, but he wrote this book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Have you heard of that one? I have heard of it. I've not read it yet. Oh, so good. You have to get that one. But it really, like, <laughs> he's so sneaky. He tells you this chapter and he's, like, telling you, oh, here's how such and such corporation really makes some decisions that don't help them in the long term. And you really buy into, oh, I can't believe they do that. That's so silly. I, I would never do that. That's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And then he turns around and shows how ambitious people do that to their own kids. <laughs> You're like, it's like too late. You've already bought into the principle (laughs) and you're like, dang it. (laughs) And so it makes you start thinking like, just like you're saying about planning for getting back into the workforce. It makes you start thinking like, 
Hey, my kid's only going to be seven once. My kid's only going to be three years old once. Yeah. You know, and, and 20 years from now, what, what am I going to look back on? You know, was this email worth it when the, when the candles are lit <laughs> at their birthday party, right? I keep trying to justify, I was like, oh, I'm so, you know, I'm working on tuberculosis. I'm working on these important diseases, but like, would that work continue without me? I'm, I'm sure it would. Um, but but it's does had- your ego want to hear that for me exactly. sometimes? I'm like, no, they need me. It's got to be me to be there. Exactly. It's so true. Okay. So for you, um, you know, both you and your husband being high achievers, do you guys have family rules for keeping it in check or is it after a while you guys just got a flow or how does that work in your house? I think we're more in the flow. So I'm recently back full time a year ago, um, full time in an office and traveling uh, at least once a month, which is kind of crazy. And he travels as well. So I think the flow is mostly that we try and we do a lot of calendaring, um, shared calendaring and that we don't travel at the same time. Um, and Divide, well, a couple of things. I also do crazy things, which I think are crazy, and I may look back on them and regret them, but I will go to South Africa for three days and come home um, just to do that quick turnaround. Um, I think for devices, we're mostly good on not being on them around the kids, but they're a part of our lives. We don't have rules about it. I will say that I mostly um, am offline or work with the kids from probably like, I would say five to six. 8 p.m. And then I definitely do the second shift. So I'm definitely working in the 8 to 10, 8 to 11 most nights. Um, and I think that's a little bit inevitable. And we both do it. And I think it's okay mostly. Um, I feel like I don't really think we could do our jobs without that in the sense that we're in meetings. Um, I'm Most of my job is very external facing. So I'm out and about and at meetings. I can't get my regular work done during the day. And it's just the point. I think we try to do less on the weekends. Um, but when it comes to weekends, if we do need to work, we're, we have, you know, clear communication. I need two hours on Sunday. Let's map out when those two hours can be. Um, so it's a very clearly defined time. Um, instead of just bleeding into all the time. Exactly. I think, you know, he works for a California based company. And so time zones are tricky. And with me having covering Europe, Africa, Asia, it's just, it could be never ending. Like you said, I think, you know, I'm that very organized person. So I go through my inbox, but my inbox will always have two or 300 emails that are all probably needing attention at some point. Um, and it's just prioritizing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was interested to hear you talk about going all the way to South Africa, but only for three days. Um, <laughs> because I started to find that like, I, I will say like, there's these opportunities where it's like, well, even when you and I got together, right? Like yeah. I can be in New York for two days or I can be in New York for three days. And I could squeeze in these couple extra meetings if I stay for the third day. And, you know, the kids are going to be fine. My wife's going to be fine. Like they really aren't, they really are going to be fine if I take that third day. But if I don't monitor myself, nobody else is going to, you know what I mean? Like, well, it's more like if I don't monitor myself, it's going to, I'm going to pay the price down the road. And, and, uh, it's those things that don't seem like that big of a deal, but maybe I probably should. And, um, anyways, those, those trade-offs of, Hey, not only what do I want for business success, but what do I want my family success to look like yeah. at the end of this, right? Yeah, and I think you know, maybe it's the same for you, but as as a mom, I think the self-care also comes in from the work travel, right? Because there's no one needing me. So I'm actually more focused when I'm in, away for those days. So, um, you know, I'm not cooking for anyone. I'm not cleaning for anyone. I actually can exercise. I 
pay more attention to myself during those three or four days. And so I try to look at it more positively. Like these are my three or four days alone. Um, and I, I don't have a lot of guilt about them, but then, like I said, I don't, it's not for a week at a time. Right. I, I do a shorter trip. Yeah. Um, shifting gears, I want to bring up something you talked about a little earlier about how important networking is. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, you know, that sometimes that advice can come across as like work hard. Yeah. At what? <laughs> you know, like that cliche, isn't that helpful in the abstract when you think about networking? I mean, we've all been to those things where so-and-so comes up to you and they've got this big fake smile and they, they've got their business card in their hand as they're shaking your hand and they, they talk to you just long enough to figure out if they can use you for a commission check and then yep. they dump you and walk on. Right. So yep. I'm pretty sure that's not the net kind of networking you mean, but what, do you have any things that you feel like after years of networking, here, here's my thought. When I go to a conference, I'm trying to make one awesome contact or I'm trying to make five awesome yep. contacts. So I don't care if I spent one hour just talking to one person. This is not the handout as many business cards as I can event or like what, what's your mindset for networking? What's yep. something you learned over time? So I'm definitely quality over quantity for sure. And it's less about the events and more about me saying, let's go have coffee or lunch with someone or someone told me you should meet this someone. And it's more of that one-to-one. Um, the meetings are good. Like you said, I'm going to meet one or two, give out, give out my business card as well as receive some. Um, and I have less expectations for those events, um, but more for the one-on-ones and, and who do I want to meet and not necessarily in my field, and then I think it's, tell me about that. Why not necessarily in your field? I mean, I, I have a reason why I think that's cool, but yeah. why, why are you looking outside of your field? Because those are the, the ideas are generated. That's when people ask the questions that I'm not thinking about, or, you know, something that is not in my normal day to day discourse. And I can start to explain it in a different way or think about it in a different way, or they know someone, um, that I don't know, or they want to introduce me to. Um, the funniest thing is actually, um, I talk to people on the airplanes. There's, I think people are very divided on this. Um, I don't bother people on airplanes, nor do I want to sit and talk for a 13-hour flight to someone on an airplane, but I am friendly, and, I, and you never know who you're going sit to sit next to. And I will say that I, I had this crazy, surreal experience on a flight to China in October where a person got on the flight next to me in jeans and a flannel shirt and a baseball cap, and it happened to be Hank Paulson. Um, and and that, for everybody who doesn't know who Hank Paulson yes. is... Hank Paulson is the former um, Chad, Fed chair chairman Treasury and also of Goldman Sachs. Um, and he's doing amazing things now that I would have never known of. He's working on climate change and has his own institute in Chicago. And from that moment on, I just said, why am I not talking to people? Who knows? You know, the worst you can do is put your headphones on and, and turn away or, you know, say, thank you. I'm going to work on my report now. But you just never know who you're going to sit next to. And, and from that, he's emailed me. We've kept an email relationship up. Um, so, that really solidified why you should just talk to people and, and be friendly. Um, I know it's not natural for everybody and that it's sometimes hard to do for people, especially if, you, if you've been working all day and the last thing you want to do is talk to someone on an airplane. But just to be more open to those to those situations is something that's been helpful to me. Um, and you just never know who knows someone or who's going to help you um, think about something in a mm. different way. You know, so kind of doubling down on that, I, I completely agree with you. And I feel like a lot of times my conversations end up better when I go into it without an agenda, like, exactly. a, you know, can I, you know, you know, how, how can we, do, how can we do something together? Like, it's like, uh, I find like the times when I can turn that part of myself off and be there for just like the genuine curiosity 
it, that's the times that are actually more likely to lead to something that's either a breakthrough for us to think about something different or a, a, a connection that gets made of someone they know that they volunteer to invite, invite me to get to know, or do you have any similar, yeah. any thoughts about that? I think that's exactly. And also because my career hasn't been linear, nor has many people's, but it, there hasn't been a linear progression. So you just never know where you might cross that person again. And I've, and in different contexts or different things. And so I, you just, I leave lots of doors open for that way. And I think if I have a scripted agenda, I don't feel very comfortable about it. And I'm probably more tense. And also I tend, when someone comes to me with a scripted agenda, I tend to walk away myself. So yeah. don't ever walk, work for me. Well, I, I really appreciated that. I know when we got together the first time, Josh is like, hey, you know, Dara's doing all this stuff for Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> you, you should go have lunch and yeah. just see just see if something happens. And it was like, I don't think either of us went saying like, oh, I can't, you know, this meeting will be a success if I can get this checkmark check. Exactly. Uh, but I felt like you're so welcoming and you had such good advice. And um, it was it was like an entertaining. It was like a fun <laughs> It was like a quality of life thing too to to yeah. not be going saying like how can you get child rescue into Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation because with their you know with their education focused domestically like you know round peg square hole wasn't going to work anyway so why show up with an agenda and instead but, you yeah. like you put me together with um, the fund over in London which you know those emails have been great back and forth anyways. Wait, and you also don't know if down the road that Bill and Melinda changed their priorities and it does become a fit. Like you just don't know. You can never predict what happens in the future. So why not have the conversation? But trying to shoehorn it now wasn't going to increase. Exactly. Like that's not going to help you and I create a sincere friendship. Right. And uh, it's kind of that Chinese saying about you can't make a flower grow faster by pulling on it. <laughs> kind of thing, exactly. On that vein, though, we we do like to ask all our guests uh, for advice for child rescue and and trying to prevent child sex trafficking or or help kids who who are in it get real care, like with this aftercare orphanage we're building in Cusco, Peru, right now. So, what it, what advice would you have from your experience about what you would be doing if you were us to get more people involved in the issue? Yeah, I think from two different perspectives. One is the local perspective, and having done a lot of work with local communities and community engagement. I think you can't underestimate the need for community partnerships and, and know who are your advocates on the ground. And I think this is such a delicate topic. I mean, it's kind of like where HIV was over, you know, 20 years ago. Um, it's knowing who you can rely on locally and who those partnerships are. But and I don't know how much you've done this, but it's also the government officials. I know it can tend to be corrupt in some countries, but then there's always got to be a child advocate in, in these groups and finding those. So I think getting some government um, support. For us, you know, we work through the Ministry of Health a lot or the Ministry of Biotechnology or, you know, sometimes even education for um, academia. And it's amazing that you can get so many doors shut because they have so many other competing agendas or the countries work in different ways than we're used to working in. But finding that one advocate in government is so huge. Um, and then I would say locally, it's it's the same as you probably have similar challenges, although I think people are, are more open to listening about child rescue than they are to TB. But um, getting that message out is finding those platforms of, of getting your message out. Um, and it seems that it's, you know, do you use a celebrity voice? What's your sustainable voice? Um, what's going to be the sustainable message? Because we've all seen with the water bucket challenge, you can get crowdfunding, you can get a ton of money coming in your door, but if it's not sustainable, then you haven't built the best platform. Sure. 
that's great advice. You know, you think about repetition and, and, you know, people hear something the first time they think it's interesting Hear it another time. They think maybe I should do something with that. And then eventually they start thinking I'm going to do something about that. Right. Right. Um, so it is an interesting point about the, the consistent voice and, and definitely the community partners. Um, another couple of questions we always ask people, we'll start with, um, do you have any favorite books? Are you, are you much of a reader or anything that you'd be telling innovators or entrepreneurs or nonprofit leaders they should be reading or classes they should be taking these days? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I am a reader. I have very little time for it. So I end up reading a lot of blogs and on things online. But one book that was recommended by Bill and Bill Gates actually last year, and this is very specific to what I work on, is Eradication, Reading the World of Diseases Forever um, by Nancy Lee Stepham. Um, and this book, I think, while it's very relevant to my work and and disease eradication. It's also the more global development. How do you work in development in general? Who are your allies, your stakeholders, your partners? And um, what defining the issue, solving the, you know what's the solution, and also the huge importance of lessons learned. What have we learned from the past? Why do we keep recreating the wheel? So it's one of my favorite books um, that I've read most recently for both topical information, but also beyond that, working in development. And we'll, we'll put a link to that. Anybody who's, you know, maybe driving to work or walking the dog right now, there'll, there'll be a link to the Amazon page for that um, on Dara's page on Ideation Collective. Um, how, uh, that's interesting. When you think about um, specifically that idea of reinventing the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. How, I mean, obviously it's, it's something that happens in nonprofit work, but how often does it happen elsewhere when, we come up with a good idea in the for-profit world, in the venture world, anywhere. We come up with this great idea, but we don't bother to go do, re- do the research to see if somebody else has come up with it. Yeah. We start getting to work on our idea, our great idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot. And so you could, that's why there should be a lot of cross-content con- sharing. It's not happening, but it could be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another one of our questions we love to ask people is, um, who had a big influence you? on mm-hmm. you, either early in your career, or early in life, of just setting an example of how to treat others. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I've definitely had many. And I, this is from someone who started traveling at the age of 15, because I grew up in small rural Vermont, I just couldn't wait to get out. Um, but I would say, I definitely had a few people that like local families that lived in Washington, D.C. that I babysat for who were just very supportive of there's a world out there beyond you. And so that nourished that, you know, you are only one person in this world. And there's there's more people out there. But then I would say the most impactful was um, my probably my first supervisor uh, at PSI, a man uh, by the name of Peter Clancy, who is actually just retiring this year. And he was a road warrior, had lived in Nigeria. had I mean, he had seen everything. And he was a VP level when I started. And he just took me under his wing and said, you're going to learn by doing. And sent me out to Nigeria when I was in my early 20s, sent me to Brazil um, and just said, this, you need to see the projects that you're working on. And that has left such an impact on me. So when I manage people, I get them out to the field. I mean, even if there's not much for them to do, if there's a report they can write or interview somebody, their their experience makes them such a better team member and employee when they've gotten to see the work that they're actually working on. So sitting in an office in Washington or New York is just not helping anybody. <laughs> and so I, I've learned a lot from him about how do you give uh, younger people that work for you experiences and, and guidance uh, 
in that because that was invaluable to me. And that definitely shot my career because then I then say I'd worked in Nigeria, I've worked in Brazil, and I had seen things and worked on projects that I don't think anyone else my age had gotten to work on. So cool. Uh, that's great advice. <laughs> um, you know, I know we've only got a couple minutes here. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, this this week you did in Seattle where these different individuals came in and they talked about the gaps and the things and Bill and Melinda actually voted on it. And just any, any ways, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Bill and Melinda and what they've done to impact the world for good. And just maybe talk about experience of actually being there with them and what, what that's like. Yeah, definitely. So basically every year for the last, I don't know, six to 10 years, um, Bill and Melinda Gates have been bringing together all of these product development partnerships together in Seattle to talk about what things have been working, what people are in, uh, innovative and, and kind of a dialogue. And what's been really valuable are the side meetings. So people get to talk to people they normally talk to, or they see once a year and they've been doing this for years. And this past year they said, you know, it's gotten to be like a thousand people. They pay for everyone to come. It's just too big. And what's, what's it really the goal of it? So this year they changed it up and decided to have an experiment meeting where they invited about two or three senior, um, senior staff from each organization uh, each product development partnership, the nonprofits, like the CEOs, the CSOs, um, and then the senior leaders from the pharma biotech companies. And then they brought in private equity, um, hedge funds, capital groups to banks to talk about, let's, let's think about what the real bottlenecks are in our challenges. What are, what's preventing us from getting to the next best idea? Broke us up into groups, facilitated groups. And each group was uh, looking at a different challenge. So pandemics, uh, gender inequality, deliver, uh, delivery and funding. And there were a couple other ones and I was in the funding group. And so basically they broke us down even further into about five to 10 people per group to talk about, you know, what is a challenge and how are we going to solve it and then present it. And, um, Trevor Mundell, who's the president of global health. And then Sue Desmond Hellman, who is now the president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and then Bill and Melinda themselves were there to think about, you know, just to listen to what are people's challenges, what are people working on, and then they agreed to fund. Um, they agreed to fund one of their projects after everyone voted, like the whole group voted on what was the best project. But in the end, they actually agreed, I think, to fund three of them to, in this over the course of the year to implement it. And it just showed their their attention and, and thought process that they're really looking at what's working, what's not working, and and to get people to think differently. And it also allowed us to be in smaller focus groups with very senior people who are addressing these problems every day. And some of their problems are very similar and some are, are unique to our diseases or to drugs or to vaccines. I think one of the challenges that you mentioned is the gap is that for my group, um, and specifically, we were looking at how do you raise more money. And so right now it's estimated that there's $3 billion U.S. dollars spent on global health R&D a year, and we're trying to get to $6 billion, so we need to double it. And from a private equity perspective, um, and the other bankers in the room are like, oh, that's easy. You know, there's money there. We just need to access it. And I think the, the, um, the separation between the two groups is quite apparent because we say, well, we're trying to, but, you know, how do you get people excited to fund tuberculosis vaccines, which don't impact the rich necessarily are a 10 to 15 year investment with not a lot of return on investment. Like that money is just not accessible very quickly. And so we, there was a lot of learning that went on and they started to understand that, you know, it's not as simple as just raising capital to fund something. It's something that's very difficult to fund. And I welcome listeners to, to think about this yeah. and then 
submit ideas, but you know, where does that $3 billion come from? Because right now we're very reliant on the Fa- Gates Foundation and, and government funding. But are there innovative ideas to pool capital or additional levies on commodity exchange commodities? Like one of the things we've looked at is um, uh, the gold exchange, uh, stock market exchange or commodity exchange. So 90% of miners in South Africa, nine zero percent of uh, miners get tuberculosis. And obviously the, the mines have been hit recently with commodity prices and they're not quite incentivized to, to donate to R and D. So do you, do you shift that burden and put it mm. on a action cost on a levy? Like yeah. make it so you don't even feel it, right? A point zero 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 one percent transaction cost. Yeah. That then creates a pool of sustainable R and D funding every year. And so those are the type of ideas that we're trying to come up with, the, the new innovative ones. But us on our own, Eris on our own can't move that. That has to be a larger voice and someone yeah. else to drive that. Well, um, do you have any thought? I mean, obviously you guys being backed by Bill and Melinda, um, do you have, I mean, it's interesting. I love that they're bringing that level of critical thinking to this issue. Are there any other things that you feel like people don't realize just what a benefit they are to the rest of the world by spending their time and their money this way? Um, I can't even begin to answer that because without them, none of this would exist. Um, their impact is so huge and they, they receive so much criticism for how they manage and what they fund. But at the end of the day, it's their money, right? They've made their money. They can decide how they want to spend it. But without their funding of what they funded today and what they continue to fund, we would not be where we are with HIV, TB, or malaria. I mean, those government funding for that just does not exist. Um, I think where their voice could be used in the future is, you know, and they've started to with the giving pledge of other high net worth individuals is where, where does their funding um, voice go? And they're getting there with Sean Parker and and Carlos Slim and other people. But those people who are, and the high net worth individuals who are getting into the game, which is amazing. It's still very focused on um, causes closer to the home. I think what's different and unique about Bill and Melinda are they really are are giving money to things that don't impact their lives and they see a greater global good with their funding. And I think that's where their voice could be used even stronger. It's like, yes, give to the giving pledge, but give to things that, you know, really need a solution. <laughs> yeah. I like the way he, it's almost like he's made it a sport. It's uh, yes. pretty inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we appreciate you making so much time for us today. We appreciate what you're doing in the world to try and uh, save people's lives who, uh, who maybe don't have as much of a voice and, uh, Besides putting a link to the donate page for you guys, right on Ideation Collective for you, um, we hope to hear more about your progress and, and let us know about milestones you guys hit and things like that. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash childrescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. So yes, sir! Subway! 
Thank you. What you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.